You you uh, you think you have everything in life you want? Of course. What are the things that you want from life? Nothing. Nothing at no, all. No, nothing. I'm very very happy. Welcome to We'll Always Have Paris. I'm Rachel Kapelkidale. I'm Nafkoti Tambarat. And I'm Chris For this Newman. week's episode, I was unfortunately out sick. Nav and Chris did their absolute best without me. I think we can all agree that uh, discussing a former dancer who loves animals and is super problematic is like my sweet spot. So I've gutted to uh, steal a Chris term. Uh, or a British term that I've never actually heard Chris use, uh, not to have been able to contribute to this one. In the meantime, I was able to participate in a This Week in Love, which we'd recorded earlier, in which we discuss who among us would be able to live with an ex. And uh, I think you won't be very surprised uh, by the two of us who... Uh, feel very strongly that we want all of our exes dead and the one of us who takes uh, perhaps a more even-tempered approach to the question. So without further ado, here it is, this week's episode of We'll Always Have Paris. And now it's time for This Week in Love. So this topic comes from Curbed. And it starts with, um, so former mayor of New York, Bill de Blasio, and his wife separated, but they didn't actually leave the house they lived in. They have multiple properties, but they decided to live in the same place. And so the article talks about is that for the most part, like this is becoming, I guess, more and more common, which makes sense given how expensive real estate is, especially in New York, and especially when you have kids, blah, blah, blah. Who cares? (laughs) What I'm interested in is, my question is so simple. What would it take for you to continue living with your ex indefinitely, right? Like you guys are separated. You are free. There's a story. There's an example in this article about two people who are so good at post-divorce cohabitation that they eventually find other partners and then just split their house so that the one new couple lives on the top floor and the other new couple lives on the bottom floor. I So reading this, I felt like I was going to jump out of my skin. I, I cannot imagine even speaking to anyone that I'm honestly and I'm sure this is not healthy obviously but like especially after like now that I'm married if I we if we got divorced I don't want to fucking see him ever again I'm assuming he's at fault what a terrible decision on his part what a glorious decision on my part and we're gonna live in the same and I have to do with we've discussed this before I don't care if I have to live in the fucking basement like uh sorry I was gonna say Cobb which is like a separate like in this in my building it's a separate building just full of windowless rooms where people like store their shit it's like a storage building um I will live in the Cobb rather than admit that one of my exes let alone an ex like husband is still alive that's (laughs) i need to pretend you are dead and i really am trying to think about the real estate thing of it right because kids i think i just can't i can't imagine what it would be like to have to deal deal with that if like we had kids together but i'm like even if the apartment was wonderful 
wouldn't I rather just murder you so I can keep the apartment rather than actually try to like negotiate? Oh my God. I was going to say sue for, yeah, like sue for half the price of the apartment, but your way is so much better. It's so much better. Well, this is interesting. I mean, it really does depend, I think, on your relationship with your ex-partner. I don't want to be boring here, but I mean, if, if it's ended very badly, then yeah, sure, like this is impossible. But sometimes people can just kind of grow apart or, you know, particularly if... They could be two people who like each other a lot as friends, but like maybe there's just not any kind of chemistry there and they just kind of grow apart and there's no lust, but the desire to remain friends remains. And in which case that would be fine, right? Like, I mean... I think it would be fine for me. Who gets married because they're friends? Well, a lot of people, I think. But I was going to say, even if, even if, let's say, yeah, the separation is super amicable, let's say both parties are financially stable, no kids, whatever, I think that this is, you know, very petty and very revealing of my personality, but I think I can only accept us living together if we both agree that we're never going to move on. Like, I can't, mm-hmm. I can't have you partnered up with someone new and delighted and me be still being single and we're living in the same home, right? No matter as much, you know, however generous I want to be and however nice I want to be because you're in a great place and I loved you and I liked you. I think, it, I just think that it's tough emotionally, right? To see someone else moving on and you guys live in the same place and then they come home, right? They're obviously going to want to talk about their new person. That's what's on their mind. Yeah, I mean, and arguably it would be tough for the new partner as well. It's like you come back and it's sort of, I mean, is it worse than like I still live with my parents? Like, it's like <laughs> yes, it is worse. Uh, so I kind of still live with my wife. Yeah. Like, so, <laughs> and I've had friends I mean, who had that conversation with their new person where it's like, we are totally separated. Don't worry about yeah. it. Uh, but yeah, we live together. But you know, and and the thing is, I've never had that end with the them moving in together. By the way, uh-huh. I know that happening in multiple scenarios, and never does it end up in cohabitation with the new part. That's it. No, never. I've never. I've never. That is somebody who is not ready to move on, and you know, again, it's but like that's clearly the case. It's like property, like blah blah blah. That's like people being like, we got married for like tax purposes. No, you didn't. We got married because of a visa. Guess what? One of you. The, the, the Americans in love with the other one. <laughs> but I don't want to be kind of like, t- like, I think there's a degree to which there are like norms in relationships, which we just sort of like assume. And these are things which have kind of like have existed for ages. I'm sorry. I just sidebar. We've scared Chris so much with our progressive talk that he's scared to say there are norms in relationships. No, I, I'm, I'm being the opposite. I think I'm the one who's being more progressive here in the sense that I think that like, there are kind of traditional ideas of what a relationship is, but not every relationship needs to be that way. Prior to the relationship that I'm currently in, I've had two serious relationships. And with one of those people, um, I could like never, ever imagine like us breaking up and living in the same house together. Uh, and with the other one, like, yeah, I, I could absolutely see that that could have could have happened and maybe you could say that's a, maybe like that's a symptom of it having been a bad relationship yeah that's what i was gonna say i mean not bad relationship but does it depend on how invested you are in it you yeah. know like the people i've been really really in love with are the ones i would least be able to have that cohabitation relationship with and i do yeah i i, I want to kind of um talk more about that because i think the level of investment is what i'm kind of concerned about like even if again it's a it's a great breakup, whatever, we're on good terms. What I've always been interested in with this kind of thing and, you know, <clears throat> Youngs ago with, with Paltrow when she made conscious uncoupling a thing and we all started talking about it with <laughs> celebrities. 
I just kept thinking about the emotional aspect of it, right? I always kept, I always wondered, there's no, there's not even a little bit of bitterness, right? There's not even a little bit of, well, it's kind of your fault that blah, 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 right? Like, even if you guys are fine, right? Even if it's really like, it's, we know it's good for us. Like, there's not one person with like lingering extra excess emotions. We're still human beings, right? And like, there's still going to be stuff. And especially living together, you see that person at their most vulnerable. You see all the little gestures they make. I don't know if I could bear, even if I'm, over i don't know if i i guess i guess what i maybe am posing is that or positing is that there's if you really do love someone and if you're really invested in them even if the breakup is fine even if you could love someone else are you ever going to be able to see the thing that endeared you to them that was so tender and not feel a pain that's it i think that it's like like every ended relationship leaves some kind of wound right. and i think that's just going to constantly keep ripping open that wound that's it. or at least reverberations right even yeah. if it's not a bad thing right even if it's not a wound there's still an echo of like oh i love when you do that right mm -hmm. and i and i i mean and even before you get to the idea of like oh and then new partners moving in i just think that being in constant kind of contact with that person especially because these the in the article most of the couples that they talk about, there's no, like, they separate for a while and they come back together. They go straight into cohabitation after they decide to to not be together anymore. And there are some happy endings, right? There are some people who really do find equilibrium and it seems like it's a great decision. So it's not to say that I think this is bad or good. It's just that I am, perhaps what I'm saying is I'm struck by my own pettiness and my own inability to get out of my own way, basically. Like, I, I can't Oh. No, I'm exactly the same. But I can imagine, for example, like a mutual friend of ours, I think we all know who I'm talking about, who could do that easily. Yeah. You know, and like uh, just kind of be fine with it. Uh, he also has a huge apartment. <laughs> oh, that mutual friend. <laughs> um, um, I Yeah, I just think it, it it's sort of like it, it's so dependent. I think that the thing for me is it really depends on who, like if, if you're if the separation is relatively amicable mm -hmm. and then if you are both moving on at similar paces in your life, then that's fine. But the problem is like living together, if that's not happening um, and then it could become a huge problem. I think, yeah, it is definitely like, I can see how it, it could be okay maybe but i think that in the grand majority of cases like breakups are messy and love is complicated and sort of different to friendship um and yeah it, it wouldn't work like, and i so. and i also think that to your point chris i think that feelings and external events are not always as related as we hope they will be because mm -hmm. if they were we'd be far more rational beings and it'd actually be a lot more comforting i can absolutely because i can still see um, again, putting myself in the story, like me and my ex-partner, both doing well career-wise, right? Both meeting people and they're still being that hurt, right? Like the feelings are not going to go away for me, at least just because of um, movement or things going well or travel or et cetera. Yeah. Like that's, I think feelings are that's what makes it so annoying. Well, and I think the thing is too that people don't ever move on at exactly the same pace. But I want to say also, this isn't really—it's not a lifestyle choice that people are doing this. It's—it's it's not like it's not polyamory. Like I mean, it is. No, this is people being forced into it by circumstances. So I mean, like, but uh, but but I mean, it, I mean, it's a—that's debatable because, like, the example of De Blasio, it's like they have multiple properties. So mm -hmm. just go to one of your other houses. So that's the thing. So it seems like um, it's a middle ground thing where, at least again, based on this one article that I read, it seems like it's 
a need that only wealthy people can have. So mm-hmm. the need for your kids to have both parents of the house. Yeah. Right. But you have multiple properties, right? So you can always take yeah. a break. Your house is big enough for everybody too, right? Like this is not – because I actually think that the the choice, the big air quotes choice that is made by people who don't have a lot of money is that you just don't not stop – you don't stop. Eating. Yeah, this has been happening for centuries for people who don't have a ton of money. Exactly. This is – we just didn't have a new term for it. Marriage. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. So it's a really weird thing where, yes, there is some sort of need, but it's not perhaps need in the way that I would have imagined or understood that word before reading this article. But then maybe it's one of these things. I mean, I said polyamory just before, but like maybe it's one of these things which, if you're forced into it, is something that needs to come with like a lot of rules and like honesty. Like, I mean, yes. like, if, if it's happening, Obviously, you've broken up with the person, so possibly communication is not that great in the first place. But nevertheless, like if if you're having to do this, then um, you should probably have like a serious conversation about what it's going to involve. That's it, and why you're doing it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I was I had an imaginary conversation in my head, but the only male name I could come up with was was Duke. <laughs> <laughs> At the moment, this sounds like a complete non sequitur, but I'm assuming that you're going somewhere with it. Like... Okay, Duke, it's over. <laughs> you're you're not allowed to cross the duct tape boundary that I've set down the middle of this 50 square meter apartment. <laughs> yeah, I'm still hung up on the fact that Duke was the, yeah, the only name you could come up with. It's a normal name in America. It's the most popular men's name forever. And is it really? No. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was supposed to be a lie for uh, my benefit. I know. I fooled the wrong person. I was about to go out on these streets and be like, hello, everybody. Every male in America is Duke. And that's our takeaway from this week in love. Every male in America is named Duke. Okay, please do not swear. You're live on Alitu. Well, you're not live, but you know what I mean. I think I'm live. I think everyone can hear me. Hello, hello, hello. How are you doing, Chris? I'm good, thanks. Hold on, wait. Um, Do we have to say something? What does Rachel say? And now it's time for the love story. Uh, And this week, we'll be talking about Brigitte Bardot, a.k.a. Bibi. And actually, the French call her Bibi. Obsessed. It's just uh, Navcote and uh, and me this week. Uh, Rachel is sadly sick, but she she sends her love and her thoughts and her prayers to the audience <laughs> out there. <laughs> uh, we miss you, Rachel, and we we know you'll have extra thoughts that we will hopefully include in a Patreon in the future. So keep an eye out for that. So before we dive in to this deeply fascinating person, um, in this case, not Rachel Capelki-Dale, but Brigitte Bardot, not as fascinating as Rachel, but we do what we can, right? It's love stories in Paris. Yeah, we're going up to the, the one about Rachel. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's a finale episode. Yeah, yeah. Chris, what do you know about Brigitte Bardot? Have you seen her movies? Are you an obsessive? Do you not give a shit? Where are you at, right? In the Bardot universe. Okay, um, in the Bardo universe, mm-hmm. you know what? I mean, before this week, before um, I started looking into her, not very much actually. Mm-hmm. 
I think like uh, two main things. One uh, extremely beautiful actress from the 1950s, 1960s. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then lastly, um, racist uh, <laughs> animal rights. <laughs> so those are the, the, the twin pillars of Bardo um, that I had before. Racist animal rights? <laughs> no, she's not campaigning um, <laughs> for racist animals. Uh, Bardo's determined to separate animals. Like you have, you drink at that water fountain, and you other ones drink at that water fountain. <laughs> no, it's the animals themselves. Like she's only keen on racist animals. I will say that one of the purest elements of Bardo's life seems to be her love and devotion to animals and their protection. Um, and actually, same for me. So before we decided we were going to do this, I, that's literally all I knew about her. I don't think I've, no, that's not true. I had seen, had you ever watched any movie that she was in before? Um, no, I, no, I, I'd obviously heard, like, cause she's the singer on a lot of uh, Serge Gainsbourg songs, right? So I also had heard a couple of the songs that she'd done, that she had done with Serge Gainsbourg. And then I had watched, so I'd only watched one movie with her and it was um, Le Mépris, the Godard movie from 1962. But I remember absolutely nothing from it because when I watched it, it was when I didn't really understand French. And so the only part I remember is like the really iconic part where she's naked on a bed and the uh, the actor she's acting with names different parts of her body as the camera. Yeah, yeah. Right? No, that's <clears throat> Exactly. Which is basically what I should say instead of I saw the movie because <laughs> I remember nothing from it. <laughs> yes. I think that she was just like phenomenally beautiful when she was younger i mean i don't think that's that's not exactly a controversial opinion appreciate <laughs> hey, was pretty <laughs> um so you know, like so i agree again this is not a controversial take Brigitte Bardot is universally gorgeous and which is really what i think i aspire to every day <laughs> i just want to be uncontroversially and incontrovertibly hot every day that you roll out of bed in the morning <laughs> That is my aim for today. I roll into my Bardo wig and I just like kind of lounge around in it. So I, so it was really, so I will say that I have come away from this deep dive into Brigitte Bardot, an absolute fan of her acting. Like I, I actually think that her beauty and her sex appeal, which we're going to talk about, like, because her presence on screen is extraordinary, right? And to be very, very honest, maybe this will be a controversial take, I have, I do, I've always thought she's very beautiful, but in my mind, I was like, yeah, but she's, you know, she's a thin, blonde French woman, right? Like, at the, at the end of the day, right? Like, it's not like she's working against a bunch of physical obstacles, is what I would have said. <laughs> but watching, right? Like, I'm kind of like, sure. <laughs> but but watching her on screen, she just exudes this, this definitely the sexiness, this charisma, but also it's it's really, it almost feels a bit taboo to be attracted to her in my opinion, when you watch her on screen, because what she really taps into, and this is not this is not me being so smart and intelligent, a ton of people have written about this at the time and you know to this day, that her screen presence really ushered in this new element, this new kind of um, phase or persona of French femininity and French womanhood, right? So my my take on watching, and I've watched a bunch of her movies at this point in the last few weeks, is that the kind of heroine she plays is one who basically all society around, let's and society meaning like, you know, it could be her neighbors, it could be the city that she lives in, um, 
everyone kind of considers her a lost woman, however you want to describe that. But the but the catch is that she's absolutely fine with that. She's not denying that. She has absolutely no desire to be pure. And her beauty is such that all the men around her want to save her from the reputation that she keeps earning for herself. And she's fine with them trying to save her. She's not opposed to that. She really likes the attention. But at the end of the day, the only people who get perturbed and kind of go into crisis over the love of it all are the men. She emerges totally fine, except for, and this is an interesting kind of trope throughout, is kind of the, I don't think, I think maybe it's kind of putting it into too modern of a vocabulary to say her mental health, but Bardot's characters also go through periods of kind of quiet temperamentalness. And in the movies, you can easily code that as being, oh, you know, the capriciousness of a beautiful woman. But it really does, especially towards like the middle and end of her career, feel like it's more leaning into a depression. And actually, Bardot, we know, does suffer from depression. Um, she had quite a few made quite a few suicide attempts throughout her life, and that really does come up again and again. And these otherwise lighthearted, fun characters, they have the streak of inexplicable sadness that no one can solve. Do you know uh, how many of the movies were written with Bardot in mind? Uh, so, kind of reflecting on her character, uh, like her actual personality, and kind of creating these characters uh, in the movies to reflect that, or um, do you think that that's something that she just brings to every role that she is in? That's a really good question. And one I've been trying to think about, I I don't want to take away from her talent by saying that they were written as such, but a lot of them were written as such. Like one of her first movies, Une Parisienne, the character is named Brigitte. Um, she has another movie that she makes with Louis Mal, which is based on her actual autobiography. Like again and again, like in, in God Created Woman, that movie, Vadim, the director and the writer later says he used very liberally references from his own, at that point, kind of dying re- marriage with Bardot. So absolutely, almost all of the directors she worked with, all of the male directors she worked with, I should say, use her as a muse very openly and absolutely take from her own life, from her own, like, for example, most of her characters love animals. In the movies themselves, her characters own lots of pets. They're always, like, setting animals free. So that's constantly being done. But again, I don't think that takes away from the fact that she's still bringing something new to that. Like, that could have been kind of a flattened cardboard version of her. Whereas, like, I read a quote from this journalist, um, Marie-Dominique Lelièvre, who says that Bardot is the first woman in the public, in the French public eye, um, to publicly claim her sexuality. She writes that before Bardot, a woman who had multiple lovers was a slut. And after Bardot, such a woman could be considered liberated. Um, And so I think that is Bardot kind of bringing her own talent and spirit into it, even though everyone is just trying to do a different version of her. So she's almost creating the art through the men instead of them using her. And like, maybe she needs a kind of conduit to um, like, they're the people who are writing the script and directing the things, but she's living the life. And then she's almost got some, she's outsourced the the directorial skill to portray her life. So she, you could argue she's like being her own muse or something like that. I don't know. No, I love that. And actually like, so a, a few things come to mind. One is that for like, you know, there's, she's really open also while she's still acting. So she quits acting in 1973. She's 39 years old. She never goes back to cinema, but she's very clear. So for example, about Vadim, she says something along the lines of, if he created and constructed me, I absolutely did the same for him. Mm -hmm. Um, And she feels a little bit like not only is she a muse, sometimes she's a vessel for other muses. So in the movie she does with Godard, um, Le Mépris, which is translated as contempt, she at some point 
realizes or cottons onto the fact that Godard is directing her to be like his then romantic partner, Anna Karina. Like he's at some point, he's just directing her to walk more like his then wife. He's just, and he's and the movie becomes this kind of swan song or lament of his own dying relationship with Anna Karina, which is basically what um, Vadim did with his first movie with her. So at some point she also becomes like this funhouse mirror who, which beautiful woman could she represent for the male director who's decided to take on her talent and her story, you know? Bogglingly postmodern. <laughs> it's so insane. And it's also really interesting. Like, to me, it kind of reveals something, too, about the men, the men who direct her, and I think also what she taps into, because what also comes out again, again in her roles is that, like, less so towards the end of her career, but for sure, the like, I would say, like, the first half, she's supposed to be almost, like, childlike in her sexuality, right? Like, there's something a bit, I don't know, like, playful and almost, like, a bit crude about her. She's not stupid. It's very clear. And actually, I think that's really, I think that is Bardot taking agency over her roles. She never lets her portrayals veer into, oh, bad dummy right she's kind of childish she's really spoiled right she and but she but she's she's kind of always winking at us that she knows what she's doing right and the term sex kitten um yes yes bardo invented sex kitten um, we said it here first <laughs> um okay so t- talk me oh. through uh bardo's uh brigitte do we call it bb right bb let's call her bb call her bb because that's what the french refer to her as She's big. Yes. Like, um, oh yeah, her her memoir that I'm determined to get. Um, I placed an order. I haven't received it yet. Is called Initial Bebe. I'm obsessed. <laughs> oh, um, so Bebe was born um, in Paris on September 28th, 1934. Her mother had always wanted to be a ballerina, so she was kind of a thwarted artist, and she took out a lot of those frustrations on. Brigitte, which including um, slapping her daughter anytime her posture kind of faltered, which actually leads to what would become one of Brigitte's like signatures as an actress, which was her incredible posture. So if you watch any Brigitte Bardot movie, what's so interesting about her is that her posture is ridiculous, right? She is ramrod straight back. And so it almost feels like she, she almost looks stiff from the waist up. But what that does whether or not it was intentional at the beginning, I think it does become intentional at some point is of course that her boobs are staring straight at you, right? Because her back is so completely straight. But as a result, it feels like the only part of her body that's moving uh, is like basically her waist and her butt. So it's it's like a really interesting mix of like a dancer's form, but and 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 a really and like a discipline, right? Like you really see someone who's in control of their body who knows how to use it. So when she lets go, you you kind of know she's letting herself let go, right? That's not an accident. She knows how to use her body to get the effect that she wants from the men in her life and the women in later movies, but also from the audience. I mean, it also it, it sounds like a kind of charisma. I know yes. that like people talk about charisma being this weird ineffable thing that you can't really put your finger on but actually you just saying that like she has this incredible posture mm-hmm. this sort of way of like you know knowing how to move her body and stuff like that and having seen her um and i, I never obviously i didn't know this story about her mom but like yeah it, it's almost like she sort of had charisma almost beaten into her by the sound of it like, so yeah. i would way of putting it i guess yeah <laughs> We're not, well, let's be clear, we're not recommending this. <laughs> we're not we're not saying charisma is worth this kind of abuse. 
Um, and you know, and actually, I was thinking also that what it does too is that when I the effect of her um, presence on screen too is of course the charisma, but it never feels like she's rushing. There's something kind of languorous about her movements as well. So when you see her, it feels like an invitation to indulgence. She's mm-hmm. never. I can't imagine Brigitte Bardot being you know the no nonsense businesswoman like oh don't have time got to get my steps in like that's not her role right her role is temptress but actually she doesn't really care if you come or go right she's like come hither if you feel like it i'll be on this hammock for the next circa 16 days i think i'm not sure <laughs> um in a lot of her movies she her character says like all i want to do is dance and eat and drink and sleep is that okay like really that that is verbatim some of her lines and the men are like uh hubba 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 yeah if you want well, basically all i want to do but i mean <laughs> Somehow I don't get sex getty. <laughs> <laughs> so Brigitte went to a really super rigorous Catholic school. She was an inattentive student, pretty distractible. And her parents clearly preferred her much more studious younger sister, which was a huge source of pain for her. And will later on kind of affect her own mothering ability. She has one child later on. She loved ballet. She took her first lessons from starting at age seven. And interestingly enough, her so her mom was a dancer. Her dad loved movies and loved making little movies. So apparently I couldn't find any, um, which actually probably makes sense for privacy reasons. But there actually there are apparently quite a lot of home movies of her as a kid, which was really rare at this period. Um, but he loved doing that. Yeah, um, so hold on, this would have been um, so you said she was born in the 1930s, right? She was born in 1934. So right. she starts dancing at seven. She starts getting famous. Well, she starts modeling things like that around 1415. So I'm guessing this is, I don't have an age for it, but I would say probably like 12, 13 is probably when her dad is making little movies of the family. Okay. So this is like in the war or kind of like, cause I mean, I'm guessing that before, she's- Before, I'm okay. guessing. Yeah. Right before I would say. Okay. So- Wait, so no, I mean like 13, 14, it's sort of just after the war. Oh, you're right. Sorry, sorry, of course. Yes. So yeah, just after the war, which means also that like I'm guessing that kind of equipment would have been really expensive. So this was not an easy hobby to get into. So clearly it was like a passion project for him and something that he was willing to invest the money and the time in. Yeah, I mean, I'm guessing they were a pretty wealthy family as well. Like, Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think they were unbelievably rich, but they were well-to-do, definitely. And in uh, Paris, right? In in Paris, she was born and raised in Paris. Oh, and even if, very good. thank God. <laughs> can you imagine? We're like, oh shit, it's a suburb. Bye, everyone. <laughs> we have to stay true to our our tagline. <laughs> um, but even though her family might not have been billion, like they might not be like Isabelle Hubert's level of wealth, like her family, but they had a lot of contacts, especially in the entertainment world. So, especially her mother, because of her dance background. So one person that she, that's kind of important in Bardot's rise is a very famous French milliner named Jean Barty. Um, And actually he will be featured in almost all of Brigitte Bardot's movies until she stops making movies. A a famous French milliner, a hat maker, someone he makes. Yes, absolutely. Yep. Uh, This was a different time, okay? Before the internet, anybody could get famous. (laughs) Crafts? were like a big deal. It wasn't just something you did as a club activity, okay? You can make real money. <laughs> Monsieur Kangol. Um. <laughs> Monsieur Kangol. Monsieur Top Hat. Please. Uh, top Hat was English, so yeah. <laughs> yeah, Top Hat is, but not Top Hat. Please. That's <laughs> <laughs> a completely different term. Oh my God, don't be xenophobic. It's crazy. <laughs> so, um... 
So he has this big runway show and her mom convinces him to let Brigitte, <laughs> this actually sounds like such a stupid idea, to, to dance on the runway. She was thinking that her daughter's movements would be kind of a nice counterpoise to the other models who are walk, walking the way that you expect models to walk on the runway. And Barté says, sure, um, but pretty much because her mom is his friend. At this point, Brigitte Bardot is this shy, kind of awkward little kid, right? Like he's definitely doing it as a favor. And her big break comes in 1949 when she's 15 years old. Another friend of Brigitte's mom, this woman named Hélène Lazareff, who at the time is the editor-in-chief of both Elle magazine and another magazine uh, kind of targeting a female audience in France called uh, Jardin des Modes. And she chooses Brigitte to model the junior styles of the year. And then by the time, by the end of that year, Brigitte becomes the unofficial mascot of Elle, and she's on a billion Elle covers, starting from this year, right? Um, 19, uh, yeah, 1950, this director, Marc Allegre, sees one of her covers for a 1950, for 1950 edition of Elle, and he asks to meet her. Now, weirdly, even though her dad loves making movies, both of her parents, and I'm going to guess this is like a French Catholic bougie thing, are super opposed to her becoming an actress. Even if this is not the time in France where... Uh, you know, kind of acting was considered <clears throat> the equivalent of equivalent equivalent of sex work. Mm. It was still not really considered a respectable job for someone of her social class. But actually, one of her grandparents intercedes. And they're like, well, you know, it sounds like a cool project. Let's see what happens. So they do a screen test. Now this only matters. So the screen test goes whatever. The movie doesn't get made, but it is on this during the screen test that she meets Roger Vadim, who at the time is um, the director. Marc Allegri is like he's his assistant, he's his writer, he's his protege, and they fall in love. Now and they fall. It's like head over heels. She's, she's how old? Sixteen. She's sixteen, and he is. I think he's a couple years younger than her. Uh, no, you mean a couple of years older? Uh, no, I'm almost positive Vadim is younger than her. Let me check that. I mean, not if he's a sort of like script assistant, surely. He's a script assistant, and his big thing is that he's a writer. Um, and that's actually how he gets into directing. Uh, so he, so oh, he, he was born in 1928, and she was born in 1934. So he's younger than her. He's older than her. Oh my God, he's older than her. <laughs> what is happening to me? I was doing. I cannot believe that I have any sort of education. I was saying to myself, he was 28 and she was 34. <laughs> This is a blessing to me so that I will start taking arithmetic again. <laughs> he wa he wasn't much older than her. He was uh let's we don't need to do the arithmetic. I was so, gonna say I daren't. I at this point I daren't try to add anything. So he's um uh twenty-two. So he's 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 not old. He's a twenty year old, sixteen year old, like exactly. So, yeah, so he's quite young. Um, and they decide they want to get married, but her parents are against the relationship. She makes one of her first suicide attempts, which makes them relent. Um, but their compromise is that they will only let her marry Roger Vadim after she turns 18. And so they get married two months after her 18th birthday. Um, and they stay together. They stay married until 1957. But the marriage is kind of breaking up before then. Um, and Roger Vadim is an is an unbelievably important person in Brigitte Bardot's life, both in terms of personal stuff, like they remain friends until he dies in 2000, um, but also because his movie, his first movie that he directs, really does put her on the map. Um, and he's the first, so according to her, she's been with 17 men in her life, and she was married four times. But I would argue that of all the men she's been with, Roger Vadim is the one that we most closely associate with her, right? Like Being in relationships with 17 men. Yes, that's, so according to her. So this is her own romantic relationships. Yeah, yeah. 
Okay. Yeah. Um, so between 1952 and 1956, she's working pretty regularly, you know, like she's in lots of movies, but they're nothing really that memorable. 1956, though, is the breakout year. She stars in And God Created Woman, which is directed by Vadim. It's his directorial debut. And this is what kind of catapults her into ultra superstardom, right? She becomes a global sex symbol at the Chem Film Festival, which until she stops attending is basically Brigitte Bardot's playground where she goes. She is the person to see. She's a hit. The press follow her around. Um, and the movie is kind of, have you, so I forget, have you watched this? You have not watched this movie, I right? I, I mean, I watched the trailer for it today, but it was hilarious because I watched a, 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 a trailer dubbed into English. Um, and also the, People really used to sell movies back then. Like, <laughs> there are a load of great, like, run-on sentences and alliterated uh-huh. person who is narrating the the, the trailer. Yeah, uh, my favorite bit was everything you expect from this movie, you will get, and um, which I had translated as like, you will see Bridget Bardot's boob. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> One of the first shots of the movie is that we see her naked body through basically the transparency of a bed sheet that she's lying behind. And then we get to see the back of her naked body. Like Vadim is like not even teasing us, right? He's like, two seconds in, here we are. I know what you came here for. <laughs> like, uh, what's, I mean, I don't know, like uh, in terms of nudity in cinema, like, I mean, where, do you know where this is sort of like landing? Like, So the nudity is actually not that insane. What makes it controversial is... Oddly enough, the fact that the director is having a relationship with the main actress, that was not common at the time. And it was considered somewhat crass, somewhat, yeah, lewd, that two people who were married would be kind of blasting, publicizing their marriage, their relationship, their sexual relationship to a wider audience. There seemed to be kind of a voyeurism there that French audiences definitely were uncomfortable with. Um, And also, even though there isn't a lot of nudity, she's so unapologetic. Like, in the movie, people constantly tell it. Like, there's no... They're not coy about the fact that she's having sex with everybody, her character. Yeah. And in fact, that's why all the older people in the village, it's a very small village. That's where the movie is set in um, in Saint-Tropez, but not like the Saint-Tropez that I think we imagine, like the really rich, wealthy one. It's a small fishing village and <clears throat> and the, and she's an orphan. So she's well, been brought to- something, The idea that like Brigitte Bardot and that movie almost mm-hmm. created Saint-Tropez to a, I mean, obviously yeah. it was doing some of the heavy lifting being beautiful and on mm-hmm. the Riviera, but nevertheless, like the the movie that really kind of like kickstarted it as this like haven for, you know, glamour and everything like that. I mean, that might not be true, but. I wonder if that's true actually, because it might, I mean, she really loves Saint-Tropez and she bought at some point like a small house there that was her refuge. But the, the, the Saint-Tropez that you see in the movie is really, it's really almost like rural, right? Like, and and that's and her role too is like she's often she's often like barefoot unless she unless someone makes her wear shoes. It's it's really simple, you know. Like, it, like truly, like people are like, oh my god, you dirty child, put on some shoes. And she's like, oh, whatever, you know. She's she's barely wearing clothes, but not. It seems like it really doesn't seem like it's it's for any sort of audience. It just seems like she just wants to be comfortable. And she's most comfortable the closest she is to being naked. So she just wears dresses that aren't skin tight, but that are basically just like a sheet over her. And then she just does her like iconic walk around this little fishing village. So it's not, (laughs) it doesn't feel like a haven for the wealthy. Like it doesn't feel like the French Riviera. It just feels like, you know, like a cute little French fishing village that she just happens to be one more urchin who lives there. You know, (laughs) 
and she works at a she works at a bookshop there. So so the 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 big air quotes conflict at the beginning is that she's going to be sent back to her orphanage because she's such a lazy person. She never goes to work, and when she does work at the bookshop, she barely looks up. She doesn't talk to anybody, but she's like noticeably very very kind to children and to animals. So so from the very beginning, she's established as being this almost like this pure. I want to say like again, she's not she's never supposed to be stupid or dumb. But like she's, it's like she's never learned societal norms or standards. Mm. She's beyond all of that. There's, um, I, I, I'm, I'm trying, I'm like looking for a word that I feel like I learned in literature classes, which is like kind of a pre-Garden of Eden figure, right? Like she's. I can imagine she's got that kind of child of nature quality. Yes, exactly, exactly. And they super tap into that. Um, So the movie comes out in Paris, November 28th, 1956. And it is a flop. Audiences oh. <laughs> do not fucking go. Oh no, it is terrible. Like audiences don't go. The critics tear apart her performance. They're especially really incensed about how she speaks. They find her drawl annoying. They think she poorly enunciates. Of course, French critics are focusing on the fucking pronunciation of a French person. <laughs> of course, that's what they get into. And in fact, the only critics who are into it, like in terms of French critics, are the people who later become the, the primary new wave directors, right? So Godard, Truffaut, Claude Chaperon, they write these glowing reviews. And Godard in particular says, this is the first movie that he's seen that speaks in the language of today. And they see Bardot as being a protagonist and a character that's never been seen before. But there's a lot of snobbery too, because at this time, direct, I actually just listened to a Desert Island Discs with Roger Vadim, which was, sidebar, really interesting, and I do recommend it. Hmm. He does a strange mix of, he's definitely charming, but he's also a fucking pig. But he does the two together, and I can't really, I can't tell how I felt about him at the end, you know? He's a pre- uh, Nouvelle Vague director whose first girlfriend was Brigitte Bardot. <laughs> I mean, to be honest, if your first girlfriend is Brigitte Bardot, I mean, maybe not his first girlfriend, but like if right. you're Brigitte Bardot when you're 22, married to her. You can't have a bad day. <laughs> you just can't. You're going to flex that for uh, for a while. Like, oh, like, oh, yeah, you are. Although I will say the Desert Island Discs intro is so shady in only the way like 1980s English radio could be where it says, one critic once said that Roger Vadim's personal life is far more interesting than any of his movies. Roger Vadim. And it's like, wow, that's the quote? <laughs> that's the quote you chose to introduce him with? Wow, fuck you, Michael Parkinson. Oh, fuck you. <laughs> so I was going to say, actually, like, um, you know, the, the French get kind of like, you know, sex appeal, beautiful weather, and uh, <laughs> and we have um, like a snide superiority, uh, snide moral superiority over them uh, delivered through <laughs> statements which people can't quite decode. Was that an insult? Was it not an insult? I'm not sure. And you say it all in a clipped British accent, as I'm sure they would have done back then. Like, yep, yep. <laughs> um, but he does mention during this interview, Madib at least, um, he mentions that at the time, a 22-year-old being a director was not an accepted part of French cinema. You had to earn it. So the primary directors of this time were mostly male, and there were people like uh, Jean Renoir, Henri-Georges Clouseau, which, who we will talk about a little bit more later, um, who had made their names really before the war and were still now trying to maintain their reputations. It was unheard of that someone this young would direct, right? And certainly this kind of movie that felt really light on its feet. That's the thing about this movie too, right? Like, I mean, I Vadim is a 
to me, a hit or miss director, but I do really enjoy this movie. And it's just fun. It's light. It's beautiful. Right. It's so sunshiny. Does it have a kind of precursor to the Nouvelle Vague in general about it then? I absolutely. I, I think I don't not not direct one to one. You can't. It's not so nakedly obvious that you go like, oh, of course, like they copied him. But you can definitely feel Vadim trying to flex, like not even flex in a kind of a personal ego way, but trying to flex the muscles of French movie making. Like how how much further can we take this? Right. Like instead of trying to deliver a moral lesson, how can we make this character a real human character? And through her life, we kind of maybe get glimpses of lessons. And the way that metaphors are delivered to you are a lot. They're they're a little bit they're still pointed, but they're funnier. They're a little bit lighter, right? Like it, it just seems to take, be taking itself a little bit less seriously. Mm, I like I, I think it's really interesting. I mean, like again, um, I'm kind of coming to all this like pretty new, but it's funny about like the idea of like almost the invention of France, or at least the way in which France perceived mm. in the rest of the world. Yes, like how important it sounds that just this movie in itself was for that. And because presumably this is post-war France um, and it's delivering some, like, it's sort of repackaged maybe some of the libertine kind of qualities of, you know, mm-hmm. France and then kind of like sending it out into the world. And this is like just where a lot of people start getting their idea of like an idealized France. Say, or... I, I completely agree. I think it's going to be important, especially with this movie, but, you, that really makes me think too, and especially on the heels of our discussion about dangerous liaison. I think there's probably, and there are probably many beautiful papers written about this, but I think there's definitely an argument to be made that when speaking about French culture, there's perhaps never not been a tension between intellectualism and kind of sexual freedom and the way that for external audiences, certainly for Americans, right? Like for a very specific type of American, France symbolizes, you know, deep thought, meditation, you know, taking these artistic liberties and being basically just more intelligent than us, but also just being really hot and sexy, right? And I feel like the the arbiters or the mediators of French culture don't really know where to stand on that, right? Like, and I think that this movie is kind of a celebration of both. Because you do see this kind of stern, if not intellectual France, but definitely like pre-war Catholic France saying, no, 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 Brigitte, right? Like, you've really got to, you know, wear shoes and cover up those legs. And her being like, whatever, fuck it. Like, <laughs> I'm just going to, you know, even the fact that she doesn't work, I would argue is a French value. And the others in this village are like, no, industry, <laughs> you must. <laughs> um but so the movie does so poorly in France that Vadim and the producers decide to recoup their losses by sending it straight away to the U.S., which at the time was pretty uncommon. And in the U.S., this movie slaps. America is like, more please and thank you. Brigitte Bargot becomes possibly the most famous French person in the U.S. I might even say the only French person at this point that the U.S. really knows besides maybe Charles de Gaulle. Um, but it's a huge hit. Everyone is obsessed with Bardot. They're obsessed with the movie. Next, it comes out in England. Same thing. England, obsessed, wild, rave reviews. Comes out in Germany. Same thing. And with, and and before the Germany part, I was thinking, I do wonder, I don't, I, I don't know if you, what you think, Chris. Do you think there's something... Well, actually, let me finish this part. So then... So then it goes back to Paris after it's released in the U.S. and then England and then Germany. And then, wouldn't you know it, huge success in Paris. Now all the critics are saying, oh, my God, Brigitte Bardot, she's the harbinger of like a new conception of femininity. But I think, but I was thinking that maybe something to be said here is that I think it is important that this movie comes out so soon after World War II. Mm. And it comes out, and if you think about it, France is still absolutely reeling, right, from occupation, from 
from the Vichy government and from just like recovering economically, morally from the war. The U.S. at this point is fucking flying high, right? Like this is a time of peak economic um, superiority. And it's maybe a time also where America is, even though it's still the 50s, but it's the late 50s. So we're kind of getting into the 60s and 70s, of course, um, because that's how numbers work. Everybody don't, you know, I got it a little bit backwards before, but now I'm back on. Hey, 28 comes before 34 and 40 comes before what? 60. Anyway, so... um, (laughs) But it's a time when America might be a bit more open to new things, right? Because it's it's kind of come out of the war feeling like we're the good guys. We are unequivocally the good guys. And of course, the UK, England is economically not doing great. But I think England does have at this point a moral superiority. So that's my theory about kind of why the movie is perhaps more is more warmly received right away in countries like the US and in England. My theory kind of falls apart when you think about Germany loving it as well, because arguably Germany really, like, there were a lot of things that happened after World War II that were not great in Germany, so... They did not have the moral superiority there, that's, I think... No, no, no. Let's, to put it mildly, (laughs) but by 1958, so two years after this movie comes out, Brigitte Bardot is the highest paid actress in France. So her rise is steady. So, you know, like, so after this movie, it's, like, clear sailing, right? 1958 is also when she shoots her first really like serious movie. It's called En Cas de Malheur. It's a legal drama. And she's acting with Jean Gabin, which who is a, who was, has, you know, extremely famous actor, has been in some of the like classics of French cinema. And this movie is selected for the Venice Film Festival, which is yet another festival where everyone is obsessed with Brigitte. Like planes are smoke drawing her initials in the sky. There are hundreds of porters at her hotel. So she's basically trapped in her room the whole time, which will not be the first, which is unfortunately not going to be um, an exclusive experience for her. But this is a real turning point for Brigitte, which is why I point this out. This is the moment where she says she realizes her life will never be entirely her own if she continues to be famous and an actress. And it's around this time that she actually buys this small fishing hut in Saint-Tropez around where she um, filmed before Vadim, and this would become her refuge. And in one of her books, because she's written a few memoirs, she writes, um, I create my own, I try to create my own worlds within the worlds of others, and I, not, I try not to leave my world too much. One of the goals of my existence is to protect this world of mine, to keep it as beautiful and honest as possible. And that word honesty mm-hmm. comes up again and again in Brigitte's movies. Almost every single one of the movies that I've seen, at some point, her character either says about themselves or someone says about them, oh, but you know, she never lies. And the and the fun, fu- the weird kind of funny journey of that is that in her last, she makes two movies in 1973, her last ones. One of them is with Vadim. It's called Don Juan. It's very bad, but kind of fun. Uh, but in that movie, she her character says to another character at the very end, I'm almost always honest. Um, and so that seems to be kind of the, but, but honesty is like a kind of a recurring theme in her portrayals of herself. Um, also, 1958 is when there's a World's Fair in Brussels, where the Vatican has an exhibit where one room is the miracles of the good, and then the, another room is about the wrongdoings of evil. And there's a picture of Bardot dancing the mambo from the end of And God Created Woman as part of like the evils of the devil. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> Again, I want to say, before the internet, the world was so wild. But we had to find so many ways of entertaining ourselves. I didn't even know there was a World's Fair in 1958. I thought those were done in the 1800s. For a start, yes, that. Also, this idea of, like, the Vatican, like, imagine the conversation that they were having there, these (laughs) priests of the Vatican. How are we going to attract people to um, be interested in the Vatican? (laughs) 
because you know what I'm really imagining is that these two rooms are really big mood boards. <laughs> so like in the good room, it's like angels and like, I don't know, fucking Catherine Deneuve. And then in the bad room, in the bad place, it's just Brigitte Bardot naked. <laughs> like, Pope, get your mind out of the goddamn gutter, okay? It's it's not convincing people not to go to hell. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> How did they think that that was a good idea to convince people to become Christian? <laughs> Well, I think the problem is when the Vatican gets involved and the Pope, who's considered infallible, like he is the embodiment of quality control for humanity. So, so if you question him, then you're automatically wrong. You get you go in the bad room with Brigitte Bardot. <laughs> like, I'm just going to have a look at the sins of the flesh again. <laughs> Pope, I just want to make sure we got all the angles really correct. Um, I'll be back in like five to six hours. See ya. <laughs> We're going towards 1960, which is an important year because of what we talked about already about the the blurring of Brigitte's personal and professional lives or like her, her portrayals of her personal life, right? Because 1960, she's super famous. She's really well paid. And two really kind of shitty things happened to her. One is that her secretary sells a tell-all to this French magazine for 50 million francs, which reveals all these really juicy details of Brigitte's personal life. And afterwards, Brigitte actually has to make really expensive deals with all these different magazines to remove a lot of these details from the public record, which she does pretty effectively, I which mean, again, pre-internet. Like, what's her personal life like at this stage? I mean, is she quite... So she's married to her second husband at this point, uh, Jacques Charrier. Um, and one of the things that was made public, and which is kind of, a, I think it seems like it was an open secret within the film world, was that he suffered, like he had a really severe depression. Mm -hmm. um, and it was also known that she was already having an affair with another actor named Samuel. I actually don't know if you, it's F-R-E-Y. And I don't know if you pronounce it Frey or Frey. Um, so it was stuff like that, right? Like it was stuff like, like how much money she spent on different things, right? Like all her beauty secrets, um, her pregnancy and her was a really difficult thing too, stuff like that, right? Mm. Um, but Brigitte has always been really careful about her privacy. Um, and so it was obviously worth it to her to kind of, Here's the thing. She's really careful about her privacy, but then when her own memoirs are published later, she takes great liberties with other people's privacy. So <laughs> make of that what you will. <laughs> you know, we don't have to say that she's a great person. Uh, no, and we won't, actually. Yeah. We simply won't. I mean, so, I mean, like, because when people say details of their personal life, she was relatively promiscuous, presumably. Yes, yeah. she was. She was. And, but, and again, I don't think, um, I think in the way that, probably like she saw a lot of parallels between herself and Marilyn Monroe and Brigitte Bardot is also one of those is not she's someone who really believed it I don't know if she still does she's kind of kept out of the public eye in terms of a lot of personal stuff but she had a, a big belief in destiny and in fate and she seems to at some point have decided that she and Monroe were somehow linked in this kind of spiritual way so whatever happened to her had resonance in Monroe's life and vice versa you know um like how old she is compared to Marilyn Monroe? You'll have to help me with the math because we've established I don't know how to read the numbers anymore. <laughs> okay, so Marilyn Monroe was born in 1926. Okay, so 26, 34. So she's not much um, younger than than Marilyn Monroe. I, exactly. It's just it's interesting to me because I mean, like Marilyn Monroe. I mean, because she died so young, um, I think has passed into this like sphere of like absolute legend. Marilyn Monroe is almost just a story to people now. And that idea that there's somebody still alive today, um, spoiler, mm -hmm. Brigitte Bardot is still alive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, who could be legitimately comparing herself to uh, to Marilyn Monroe 
and that not be a kind of like, you know, I think that I'm Napoleon kind of complex. Mm -hmm. But I would, I kind of think that Brigitte Bardot has accomplished the same thing in terms of her own legendary status by cutting herself off completely from acting. Like I actually, did, I actually wasn't sure if Brigitte Bardot was alive or not when I when I started researching this. Like I, I, I kind of, and I had heard, I'd probably heard from different places that yeah, she's her animal rights activism, that she's pretty conservative, things like that. But all of that feels like a completely different person. Like by cutting off her career so abruptly and at such a young age, I think, I don't think this was, this might not have been her intention, probably wasn't, but she has managed to kind of save an amber, the Brigitte Bardot of her acting. And that's what I think of. And there are actually really few pictures of her as an older person. Um, and the ones that we do have are clearly like paparazzi shots that she wasn't prepared for. You know what I mean? Like, so she doesn't look her greatest, but who would, right? Like when you're, you know, leaving a car and you're looking at the paparazzi like, fuck off, you know? Um, I'm definitely not saying that I don't think that Brigitte Bardot is, you know, as iconic as, as Marilyn, mm -hmm. maybe not quite as iconic as Marilyn Monroe in the kind of right. like fully global sense, but like mm -hmm. definitely, it, it's a sort of like, they're on a similar kind of level, but I'm just saying, uh, it, it's just interesting for somebody, like, I mean, I guess, I guess it's just interesting that Brigitte Bardot is still alive. Um, <laughs> God, I hope people think it's interesting that I, we're still alive too. <laughs> That's my greatest hope. <laughs> I mean, there's one good thing about getting older. It'll be more and more interesting every year. <laughs> Infinitesimally at first, but then there's a real kind of like upward. Right. Three, like, <laughs> as soon as we get to three digits, then we're, it's interesting. It's capital I, interesting. <laughs> um, but actually something I didn't really come across in the research that I did is I do wonder also how much of Brigitte Bardot's like physical appearance she modeled deliberately after Marilyn Monroe. Mm. There's, there's so many similarities, I think in terms of their uh, kind of their presence in media, right? Like in kind of a general media landscape. I don't mean to say that Bardot copied Monroe, but I just wonder a little things, right? Like definitely the way that she styled her hair, that that platinum blonde, I don't know. That could just be accidental, of course. And she does have blonde hair, you know, like it, it might just be that that was, uh, Marilyn Monroe is so iconic and so massive in kind of, again, any landscape, any sort of cinema landscape that it's impossible to avoid those comparisons, but something that just came to mind, I don't know. Mm. Um, the 1960s also really um, an important. It's it's also kind of a shitty year. So it's this is when she has her child, her only kid, Nicola, um, which was, which was really, God, this poor kid. So um, Bardot did not want it. Yeah, hmm? she, she said, did not want to have a kid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she was against this, and she she'd already had two abortions uh, when she was with Vadim, but for reasons that I could not find, um, she's unable to find anyone who will perform an abortion when she's with Jacques Charrier, her second husband, and so she does have. Uh, her child. Um, the pregnancy itself is so difficult because the press are hounding her. And so they essentially have to block all of the windows of her apartment during the entirety of her pregnancy. Um, and later on, she, she, in describing her pregnancy, she writes, um, my pregnancy was nine months of hell. It was a little like having a tumor that was feeding off of me, a tumor that I was carrying in my swollen flesh, just waiting for the blessed moment when it would finally be out of me. Um, later, she would add, I would have preferred to give birth to a little dog. <laughs> That's rough. I think it's really interesting. So you said that like she blacked out all the, the windows. Like There are very few pictures of her um, mm -hmm. being pregnant. pregnant. Um, 
I mean, there's there's an interesting thing there about her also. I mean, I know I'm skipping ahead, but like retiring from acting at a certain point and mm-hmm. like keeping this like pristine Bardo image in, in in everybody's heads. Like, I mean, right. the, like she seems like a very kind of like authentic person who didn't necessarily love the fame that much. Right. And yet that like the pre- uh, pregnancy thing kind of suggests on top of the um, the sort of retiring at a certain age, which I know, as I say, we haven't mentioned yet, mm-hmm. but it does, it, it, it suggests a kind of like a real control over her own image and kind of keeping Bardo or BB kind of pristine in terms of the cameras, particularly if there have been that many pictures of her since her retirement. Yeah, that's a that's a really, really important and good point because what happens <clears throat> and yeah, we're skipping ahead, but mm. I mean, we're used to this now with <laughs> this podcast. Um, like what's interesting is that towards the end of her movie career, her agent is really perturbed. And actually, generally, I think in like the cinema world, critics are confused and disturbed by Bardot seemingly sabotaging her own career. Like at some point she just starts turning down roles that we now know to be excellent roles and she would have been great in them, but she just chooses these random ass roles that are bad. And at some point she's just producing flop after flop and it doesn't seem to bother her. It doesn't seem to make her happy when she has a hit movie, nor does it seem to really particularly upset her when she has a bad movie. But you're absolutely right though, that she's really careful over protecting her, her physical image um, until like her last movies she barely looks different, right? And like, granted, 39 is not old at all, but she really, like her hairstyle has changed for sure, but she's clearly got out of her way to maintain a very specific body, right? Like she's really, you know, her hair is just as blonde as it always was. And so there's there's something, I, I don't know if this is the case, and she's really not given many comments. She doesn't seem to be at all interested in like looking back on her film career. Like I remember there was someone who wanted to do, um, like a, a biopic about her and she was like, just wait until I'm dead and then do it. I don't want you to do it while I'm alive. Um, so it's not like she's interested in, in kind of reminiscing or that nostalgia, but maybe there's something about her legacy that does matter to her. So even if she's not so fussed about being an actress who works to the end of her days, it's not the actual work. And later on, actually, that it, the honesty and authenticity thing will matter too, because it seems like a big turning point is her last one of her last movies in 1973, she looks in the mirror in her costume and she's like, I look like a fucking idiot. <laughs> She's like, this is such a joke. This is so stupid. Look at this costume. Look at this makeup. And it seems like when the when that kind of fantasy element of the cinema breaks for her, she can't keep going with it. She can't because it's not authentic for her anymore. It's not honest. Mm-hmm. Um, and she has to leave. It. She has, that's when she has to let it go. Um, and it seems like it was a pretty it was pretty clear for a while that she was done and we're just kind of doing it for the money at some point the godard movie happens godard does not want her to be in the movie um at that point she's actually kind of going out on double dates with him and anna krenna his romantic partner because she's with sammy Frey or fry um who's in a play with anna and while they're double dating she finds out like brigitte france finds out that godard is going to make a movie adaptation of one of her favorite books le mepris which is by alberto moravia and she just kind of like starts leaving hints you know like if you're still casting, like, I would honestly love to be in this movie, Jean-Luc. Like, whenever you want to, you know, I don't know if you want me to send in a tape. I don't know if you just want me to, like, show up on set. But Godard is like, I don't fucking want you, right? So he's done a 180 about his perception of her. He, you know, if you remember, if you recall, like, in 1956 with And God a Created Woman, he was like, finally, this actress who's who's capturing this moment. Now he he's like, she's establishment. 
right? Because Godard is kind of that person, right? <laughs> he's like, she's, he's like, you know, she's become someone that I'm not interested in, in directing, right? Like she's not contemporary. And the only reason why she ends up starring in the movie is that she's such a big success, like a hit, uh, that the producers are like, <laughs> Godard, no one's coming to this movie because of you, okay? You are 100% going to cast her. Um, and they end up paying her a million dollars, which is half of the movie budget. <laughs> wow. I mean, <laughs> God, I mean, big change for Godard since uh, the times of, um, what's it called? Uh, Buddha Zuth, like, yeah. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and again, <laughs> cutting all the costs that he possibly can. Well, that being said, I would have thought that Godard would like relish the opportunity to have somebody who was such a big star in his movie in order to subvert it slightly, which I'm sure is what he ended up doing slightly. It but... is what he, for sure. Like, I think he, I think he. Whether or not that was a pleasant experience for her, I think it's deliberate the way that he uses her iconic status and plays with it in the movie. But like I was saying before, he also basically directs her to be another Anna Karina. Um, and this is when his relationship with her is fading. So it's really kind of fucked up because he's basically mourning the loss of one iconic French muse using another iconic French muse, but also trying to subvert what a muse means within French cinema. <laughs> it's the artist's dream, right? Like, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> oh, if only I was doing that with my life at the moment. <laughs> um, I, I do want a, a little callback to a previous episode, Josephine Baker. 1964, uh, Baker releases a statement asking for help to save the property in France where she lives with all of her children. Um, we did an episode on it. Don't worry about it. If you haven't listened to it, please do. Um, and Bardot was so moved that she actually does her own televised appeal in support of Baker. So Bardot's not always terrible is something that I do want to keep in mind for myself as well. Um, she turns 30. She goes to Brazil uh, with her then partner who's Brazilian. Goes to a place called Buzios in Brazil, where which she absolutely loves. They love her. There's actually a statue of her that's still there now. I love it. It's like um, when I was in um, this town in Spain, Oviedo, um, uh -huh. like this summer. And uh, like, Woody Allen went on holiday there once and uh, there's a scene in, I think, the Christina Barcelona set there. There's a statue of Woody Allen. I feel this is, um, you know, arrogant big city energy that I'm giving off here, but there is something kind of like sweet and I'm going to say a little bit pathetic about this sort of like smaller town. It's like very famous and visited there once. And... Um, <laughs> But a statue is such an investment, right? It's not like, oh, we'll do, I mean, a mural's an investment too, but that feels a little bit like, oh, the thing's already been built. We're going to paint to top it. This is like, you've got to hire a sculptor. You've got to find space for it. It takes a long ass time to make a statue. Yeah. But she's also actually, so this, she's also in a movie with uh, Jeanne Moreau in 1965 called Viva Maria. <laughs> not the best title, uh, but it is a hit. And everyone um, really raves about Bardot's performance. And this is a big deal because Jeanne Moreau is, of course, French film royalty. She is mm. the quintessential great French actress. And Jeanne, and Bardot was really nervous about it and she does beautifully, right? So this is 1965. She's almost at the time when she's about to retire. And up until now, she's doing great. Uh, she does refuse to be a Bond girl um, for On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Um, and she refuses to be in the Thomas Crown Affair with Steve McQueen, despite being offered a million dollars. So this is the beginning of when she starts making choices where you're like, 
Oh, also, I kind of would have loved to have seen her version. So 1968 to 1969, she has an affair with Serge Gainsbourg. They do a few songs together. Uh, she does a U.S. Western called Shalico, which I have never heard of with Sean Connery. It is a flop. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it, it does not do well. It's actually called, it's it's uh, pronounced Salico. That's just uh, Sean Connery said it. Shalico. It's a huge flop. Uh, she later on says during the press tour for this movie that she has no idea what it's about. So at this point, she's just like, fuck this career, right? Um, her agent's getting really concerned. She's turning down all these movies. She's only doing uh, flops. But 1971, an important year for her because she is chosen to be the model for the bust of Marianne, um, one of the major, you know, one of the symbols of France. This was, I, I'm speaking for um, Rachel, because I know that she would bring this up if she was here. But she uh-huh. talked about, the, wasn't this on her citizenship test? Yes, it was. Yeah. Yes, it was. You had to. You're absolutely. You had to name one of the actresses or a famous person who has, yeah. who Marion has been modelled on. Exactly. Exactly. And for those who don't live in Paris, like these busts are in all the city halls in Paris. So you are seeing Brigitte wherever you go, which I'm sure is a thought that terrifies her. It, it's. I. It, I. I genuinely think this is. It. it it's wild, actually, that they. Um, isn't that crazy? Yeah. She's also, ooh, um, I forget if she's the first woman ever or the first, I think she might be the first woman to enter the Elysee Palace wearing trousers as well. So a lot of weird, weird-ass firsts in Bardot's life when it comes to politics. <laughs> um, and as we've said, she retires officially in 1973. Um, her last two movies are Don Juan, which it, which reunites her with uh, Roger Vadim, and it's a flop. Um, and then her other movie, which I've, I've never heard of until doing research, is called <clears throat> L'histoire très bonne et très joyeuse de Colino Trousse Chemise. And bizarrely, this movie is not a hit. I mean, <laughs> wouldn't you believe it? <laughs> they should have gone for a sort of a snappier title, like Sex King. And so, yeah, so she leaves cinema and she later says that she decides to quit because she wanted to dedicate her life to the cause of animals. Uh, her quote is, I want to give back to animals what they've given me all my life. And she has fully devoted herself to animal activism um, to the point where it really does seem like any sort of political stance that she takes begins and ends with you know her north star is are the animals being protected so that can be good right so she's one of the first from starting from like early 60s she's one of the first famous people to actively campaign for a more humane way of killing animals for their meat and it's one of the first times the public realizes that she's not dumb like she obviously knows the subject really well she's very articulate very eloquent and of course very impassioned um and that's one of the first times that the public realizes that this is a huge part of who she is. I mean, I, f- I feel like we're finally getting the, uh, the, the love story part of uh, this. The love of Brigitte Bardot's life is her... Animals. With animals. It's <laughs> certainly not m- being a mother. Um, <laughs> it's yeah. Well, here's the, but here's the thing. I feel like the love story is twofold here, right? It's like the love story between an- like Brigitte Bardot loving animals. But then I think also... Maybe threefold, because it's like the love story. I think really the love story of like obsession with like a very specific type of French female beauty, I think could really be associated with Bardot as well. And then also like sexiness being 
a calling card of French cinema. I don't, again, it's not just her, but she's such an important part of that, right? Like the fact that this podcast even exists, right? I think is in large part because of someone like her, you know, like the fact that, the fact that we could say to people, oh yeah, our, our podcast is love stories in Paris. Like imagine if I was like, we're going to do love stories set in Boston. Yawn. We're not doing that. Whoever associates Boston with love, but Paris is love, right? Like that's how people see it. And I think that movies like the ones that she became so famous for have done so much work to make that feel like a, yeah, like a fact almost. Oh yeah, of course Paris is sexy and hot and that's where people fall in love. Duh. We don't even have to question that. Yeah, wow. I mean, <laughs> so patrons, I mean like- Boom, boom, boom. <laughs> podcast, I mean, are we suggesting that maybe we have um, some sort of like image of Brigitte Bardot uh, as our icon possibly kind of going forward? Like, I mean, I was going to suggest a little bit more daringly and perhaps- Maybe for a Patreon, we just record ourselves stealing one of the Marianne busts from a city hall and <laughs> and, ha- and putting that in our clubhouse and making that our mascot. Um, and I really think we could get a lot of eyes on us on this pod if we do something that you know, you know, this is that risky. Um, a, a confession, which um, if I ever go for my French citizenship, um, mm-hmm. I would have to bone up on this. But like, I have no idea who Marianne is. Like, I mean, I know that she's obviously the symbol of France, but... Right. What's her story? I... <laughs> Sorry, I'm <laughs> laughing because you really... Like, what's her deal? Hey, Naf, what's her fucking deal? <laughs> so actually, I have no fucking idea. Like, I don't understand why one of the symbols of France is le coq. Like, I don't understand how the rooster made it there. It's honestly, guys, the symbols of France, because I did have to take a civics class at some point to in pre- preparation to finally try to be a citizen, which I haven't done yet. Um, but the symbols are Marianne, who is she? Le Coq, what? And then the third one is like some sort of device. It's like, it's not a fork. It's like, it's like an axe. <laughs> I, don't, I don't even know about this one. I mean... <laughs> It's something so inexplicable to me. It is an inanimate object, and I just I don't understand. And by the way, I could look it up. I refuse to. I really want. I want the nineteen-year-olds who are using our podcast to study for their GCSEs, their SATs. I want you to go ahead and tell your French teacher, um, professor, one of the symbols of France is a fork. <laughs> Animal activism. I think that like. Um, we should probably talk a little bit about like the controversial things that she yes. has said because I mean yes. um, so actually to be fair one of the so part of the one of the things that's always been controversial about Brigitte is in part her animal activism and not not in and of itself the activism but the fact that she's so focused on animal rights and seems to have little to no interest in human rights <laughs> Um, it's oppressing them I think yeah yeah, exactly so um, again you know round of applause for someone who really loves animals as much as she does great Brigitte but she has said wild fucking shit about people so Brigitte Bardot has a huge problem with immigrants Um, she in one of her books um, open letter to my lost France already lolol I'm rolling my eyes Um, she wrote quote (laughs) My country, France, my homeland, my land is again invaded by an overpopulation of foreigners, especially Muslims. Um, She is fined on three separate occasions by French courts for inciting racial hatred with basically this open letter. 
which she not only releases in 1998, she makes it a book later on. She like triple downs on this. She's like, I'll keep paying the rent. I'll keep paying the rent. I'll keep paying the fine. But I said what I said, what I said. <laughs> Again, I got to be honest. I got to be true to me. I heard about this and I, I actually thought like, good for the French courts. I mean, like, it, it, yeah. um, I wasn't aware that like you could, because I mean, like she was making racist statements and mm-hmm. I wasn't aware that that was like, I mean, must be some kind of crime, or maybe they're finding finding her on a technicality or something like that. Well, it's just what I was going to say was like, and I and I'm certainly not an expert on the ins and expert on it in the in on the ins and outs of the legalities of this. But I, what I remember is around the time of um, the Shawnee Hebdo killings, mm. that that was when um, there were a lot of like breakdowns of what hate speech means in France versus, for example, in the U.S. And I think the way that again, really forgive my ignorance here. I don't mean to, say that, but I think they're kind of they, it's divided between. Hate speech is just a really shitty thing to say, and you are a terrible, you know, like bigoted person. And hate speech that is deemed as inciting people toward hatred. Um, and she's pretty. She her her distaste is that's too nice of a word. Really, her total hatred of Muslims comes up again and again and again. That's she is not okay. Sweet. Does it does it ever come up? Because I mean, you said that in her movie. I mean, they're not obviously not going to celebrate it in the movies, but you said that like. Her love of animals, obviously, mm-hmm. there right from the beginning. Is this sort of like hatred of of foreigners and kind of like external influences there from the beginning as well in her movies? I don't know if you're aware. Of no, that. N- yeah. uh, no. You know what? Okay, so it's not. But I'm really glad you brought this up because one of the things that I was noticing is that. So I've not read anything about this, and maybe I'm, maybe I'm stretching the point a little bit, but I don't care because I think it's a pretty good point. So I'm going to just say it. <laughs> um, is that a lot of times. You know what I mean? Like, I got, me too, I got to be free to be me, Bardo. <laughs> I got to say my truth. <laughs> I got to be authentic and honest. Um, I think it's really interesting how in movies, because she's supposed to be far more liberated than other women, um, often what will happen is that she'll be placed, she'll be placed in scenes with people of color, artists of color, or she'll be placed kind of in proximity to queerness. And it's supposed to be kind of, I think, to me, it seems like it's a pretty big nod to her being somehow liberated, somehow outside of the norm of um, like whatever is considered like the standard of like a straight white French woman, right? So it seems like in movies, other popular, like other marginalized populations and groups become a way of showing us that she's different but without having to place her in any sort of political context. Um, so it's really interesting to see her kind of come out on this, like these pretty racist remarks where it's like, you you used a lot of this to be cooler than perhaps you were. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it, it's very hard to say whether it, it was something like these are opinions which have come to her later in life or whether they're, exactly. they're, they're things. I mean, like what I'm really getting from this, um, because as I say, in the kind of the, the research that I did or the small amount of research mm-hmm. that did, is like what a, massive figure that she is in France mm-hmm. I don't think I was aware still of her cultural impact here um Same. she's really really big like I mean yeah. um to the extent I saw like I, I don't know if it's the same documentary but when people are uh, kind of giving tours of Saint-Tropez they describe her house as the uh, the Eiffel Tower of Saint-Tropez in uh, really like you know so that's but and, and and how she kind of has moved there now to get away from everything. And yet she still has boatloads of French tourists going past, just taking photographs of, of Brigitte Bardot's house. I, oh, but, but but actually, and one last thing about, well, about at least this part, just this part of her being a shitty human being sometimes, um, is that when I said that, oh, the animal rights activism 
really forms the core of her political activism. Mm. Her excuse for saying the crazy ass shit that she has said about Islam, about Muslims, is that she claims that because Muslims do ritual slaughtering of sheep, that's why she thinks they're kind of savage and shouldn't be allowed in France, right? Like it always, she always manages to bring it back to animals as if she thinks that we're all going to go, ow, oh, the ritual slaughtering. Oh, totally, girl. Oh, my God. Yeah, we're really unco- Oh, I'm sorry. We're not going to make you pay a fine for that. Like, uh, Maybe there's a degree to which, like, when somebody is sort of, like, in her early years, kind of, like, that beautiful and then that iconic, mm-hmm. that there's a tendency to, uh, like, explain away um, the kind of shitty things that she's said um, post that time. But that being said... Um, she does genuinely seem like a really fascinating character, and like you are trying to pin down where these views come from. And I like, I, I don't, I, I wonder if there's, there's also something about like the way in which, as I say, she's like, an incredibly beautiful person, and, mm-hmm. and like was at a certain stage, and so there's a sort of a degree to which like it's difficult to assign a bad morality to somebody who look like that and who has posed for the Marianne portrait and everything like mm-hmm. um and so it, it's maybe not a complexity in her personality so much as like a complexity in the way in which we like view what we see her personality as maybe being kind of like you know in, in that way in which mm-hmm. like she's a the, there's something mysterious about her because of that that beauty which I think is sort of almost the the god created woman uh trope as far as I understand it that you're always mm-hmm. trying to understand this this person who is so magnetic who draws people to them so much <clears throat> and maybe the the reality is a lot simpler that she's um yeah she's just a bit of an asshole I don't know <laughs> <laughs> you know um I would also be remiss to not note that um when her memoir came out in 1996, uh, again, Initial Bebe, I'm awaiting my copy right now. Um, her ex-husband sues her for violating his privacy. Her son accuses her of, quote, violation of intrauterine intimacy and actually does get a payout from her. Like French courts decide that he's right. Have I you mean, ever heard of that? Intrauterine intimacy violation. It, it sounds very kind of contemporary, but I mean, like, to be fair. 90s, baby. <laughs> I think that um, if I was the judge, I would be like, I'd be like, yeah, like, called him a kid and wished he'd been a dog. Like, <laughs> I mean, it looks like you were a mistake in perspective. Like, <laughs> but what a twist on the idea of it could be a mistake. I wish you were, I wish a dog had come out. I literally wish that I looked at it a bit like, oh, <laughs> Yeah, 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 and not even just to say it to their face, but to write that in a memoir. At least she's honest. Like, I mean, always. And you know what? Maybe that should be the last word about Brigitte Bardot: honesty, <laughs> honesty, honesty. <laughs> we we don't stand our honest queen because she's a racist, but we note it. <laughs> we note it in the public record. <laughs> And now it's time for Mary. Uh, sorry, oh, fuck, I fucked it up. <laughs> Keep that in. Keep everything that you just said in. This is the new intro. And now it's time for our favorite segment, Mary, fuck, kill. Okay, the three options are Mary, fuck, kill, actress, icon, 
activist. When you say actress, you mean like just a, like any actress, basically. It's not Brigitte yeah. Bardot. But what I mean is like a moderately famous actor, an icon, mm-hmm. right? An actor who's going to be, who's, or, but not an, an actor. Let's just say like someone who's definitely going to be an icon, is an icon. Already is an icon. I already think. an icon. Yeah, yeah, they already have to be there. You're absolutely right. And then activist. I think it's pretty straightforward for me. Okay. Um, I'm curious. Which is, fuck the icon, obviously. Okay. Uh, because what a notch on your bedpost, I don't know. Like, <laughs> And, you know, as you know, I actually literally whittle in the notches in my bedpost. Like, it's really important <laughs> to me. <laughs> like we were saying earlier, though, like, I mean, if, if you know, the, that director, like, yeah, I, I kind of, uh, you know, was, I mean, he was married to Brigitte Bardot, but I mean, like, that's the kind of thing that you could wheel out at any dinner party, any uh-huh. social occasion that you're ever at. Uh, yeah, I had sex with, um, I don't know, I can't think of any icons. The Beckhams, the Beckhams. <laughs> if I had sex with the Beckhams, you couldn't shut me up. I'd go on a speaking tour, an eternal speaking tour, just talking about this. Have you seen the documentary? No, is it good? It's pretty good. It's, okay. Uh, okay. Yeah, it, I mean, look, it's Netflix. They know what they're doing, right? That's so, true, right? And if they to... want to come on board as a sponsor, we're we're pro. <laughs> if the icons are the Beckhams, I don't know who whoever it is. I I am also kind of curious as to like which icon would I draw the line at sleeping with. Like, and also remember that it could also be an icon, like a religious icon. I don't want to limit you. So maybe you want to, <laughs> you know, we were talking about the Vatican earlier. This might be our most religious episode yet. And uh, <laughs> Rachel yeah. was not present. Unfortunately, <laughs> we know, we know how devoted she is to her faith, but <sighs> Sorry. The icon, um, I'm, I'm fucking the icon, whether it's a, a you know, St. Anthony or uh, <laughs> Madonna. I don't know. I'm not the Madonna. I mean, Madonna. But it could be the Madonna or Madonna. Yeah, even like, though I'm an atheist, I feel that <laughs> saying, ah, yeah, I, anyway, I mean. I just, I, I want you to know this is a safe space. I don't want you to feel limited in any way. This is not 19, whatever. This is not the World Fair. Okay. This is just, you know, just having a little chat. This is a pot. <laughs> the Virgin Mary. That's who we're talking about here. Like, um... that's it. And I want to really be clear. You brought her up, and I just so I feel like that was something that was on your spirit that you wanted to bring forward. Brought up Madonna in the context of icons, and then obviously my mind went to the Madonna. But okay. um... you have to get defensive, okay? I-, I told you I wasn't judging. Fuck it. If if the opportunity arose, that's right. You say it. I'm leading you right there. <laughs> I mean, what a notch in your bedpost that would be. Like That's like 16 know? notches. I think that's one bedpost. I think you move on to another bedpost. That's pretty cool. Immaculate. But, you know, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't like to brag. It, it, it's a weird thing. I told you the story about, like, these um, this uh, woman who I met once who, um, like, had, had sex with Axl Rose. No. Um, like, she, uh, her and her friend, um, they... They knew that, like Guns N' Roses were playing a, a night in London. They turned up at uh, their hotel in um, like full like Playboy bunny outfits, and they just called up and they were like, um, "Well, they went to sort of reception, and then they were like, yeah, um, Axl Rose uh, ordered us.'" And 
and they were like, yeah, all right, go up. And then they ended up having sex with Axel Rose. Um, oh, my God. That's a story. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, <laughs> I just don't know where it falls on the whole. Um, yeah. The line of things. I mean, because obviously it's a cool story, but it's also a bit like. You know. Does it also does it also change your feeling about the story that it's Axel Rose that they did all that for? <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> right? You gotta like. There are people where if they had told me that story, I'm trying to think of who that would be. I'd be like, fair. You did what you had to do. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you lived is what I'm hearing. You decided this one life, Mary Oliver style. What will I do with this one crazy whatever that line is? I'm a fuck insert here, right? Like Axel Rose, though, I don't know. I don't know if that's what you should do with your one crazy beautiful life. And again, well, that's not of, the Mary Oliver line. But you're kind of, you're you're fucking an icon, right? Like, I mean, that's the that's I true. Mean, in some circles, he is an icon. Yeah, I think without a doubt. Like, he, I mean, he's a he's a minor icon. Sure, he's he's no. Um, yeah, no, he's no Mary. He's like a he's not even the Saint George. He's like a secondary George, not the one who killed the dragon. Like the one yeah, that prayed a lot. <laughs> you know that one who kind of slipped into the icon status but no one talks about him like a rubbish icon but yeah i think i'd still i would still do that just for okay. um okay. i think i will uh i will marry the actress um mm-hmm. because yeah, you know i mean like that's it, it's all part of the kind of like the struggle the creating art the mm-hmm. you know it, you know marry the artist in in some respects i suppose you could mm-hmm. say um uh, you know, and then um, I hate to say it, but you know, kill the activist because mm-hmm. um, activists are uh, dead, uh, often quite annoying people. Um, oh so fucking irritating. <laughs> kill, kill, kill. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Th- so- thank you for your service. Sorry, act. I mean, like it's really important. <laughs> I can't believe I'm being so like whatever. Activists have done such important things. I just don't want to fuck them or marry them. Well, actually, then, then that being said, maybe we should be. But at the very least, kind of letting them live. Um. Yeah, that's true. And you know what? Because I was going to say, I was going to have kill activists in mind too, but now I'm kind of, I'm thinking about switching around that order. But do you want to keep this? Do you want to keep kill, kill, well, kill for activists? I think this is indicative of my attitude towards activists, which is like, uh, somebody else will get it. So uh, I'll, I've made my bed. I think that I'm going to go... Marry the icon, fuck the activist, kill the actor. Now, here's how oh. I'm viewing this. I know, this is this is shocking mm. to me, too. This is breaking news unto moi, and I'm the one who's coming up with this. You've really shuffled the deck there. Like, I mean, that's, that's completely different to what I said. I know. <laughs> with these three options, completely different. <laughs> you couldn't get more different. <laughs> like... Utterly baffled. <laughs> okay, let me explain. So... I'm thinking the activist, what they do is so important and it requires such passion. And I just am thinking like the frustrations of the day, right? Like you're out there, you're on the front lines, you are protesting, you are marching and God, justice will not be served. You know, like you go to the courtroom, you make the statements, you're brilliant and no one is listening. And then you come home (laughs) to gorgeous me and you're like, oh, all this, all this passion. I don't know where to put it. And then you're like, I know. And then it's just <laughs> wild, right? This is just like, whoa, you've activated me, activist, right? Like, 
you've made me see justice in a whole other light. Like you've, you've, you've can't, I don't know. You've totally, you've remodeled my insides and my outsides is how I want to feel. And so, yeah, so I, I, I really, I think this is like Gertrude Stein level sex. You know what I mean? Like, and certainly no higher praise can I give to any sexual partner. Oh my. The activist. (laughs) The activist who activated me is my memoir title. Now, kill the actor because, honestly, do we need more of them? And I'm just going to put that right there. And then but, I'm thinking know, I about realized, like, when I was um, defending, you know, marrying the actor, I was also mm-hmm. thinking, like, I mean, a lot of actors are quite irritating. So um, irritating. Yeah. And again, there's so many of them. You know, here's an actor, there's an actor everywhere, an actor, actor. I just feel like let's get rid of one. No one's going to notice. They're a minor actor. Not even yeah. a minor icon. If you had to choose um, any actor in particular who you just like for the chop, like I will Ansel Elgort. <clears throat> I want to make sure I got it right. <laughs> Sorry. Kill, kill, kill that bitch. <laughs> Ansel Elgort. Don't need him. So fucking boring. A terrible actor. Deeply uncharismatic. Not attractive. Looks like a llama. And there was some sketchy shit about someone he dated. Nothing good about him. Get rid of him. Kill, kill, kill. I have, I have no idea who he is, but I just, like... You don't know who Ansel Elgort... How have I not ranted at you about him? I despise him. He's so bad. He's a llama-faced, uncharismatic, deeply problematic person. And he was in Baby Driver, a movie that is not good, but would have been so much better if anyone else had taken the starring role. Come at me, internet. Yeah, I mean, I feel bad for him kind of just randomly yeah. being killed by your whim, which is what this feels like. <laughs> just sort of- I know, and I've never felt more powerful. Oh my God, what if Ansel Elgort comments? I'll feel so bad if he feels bad, though. You know my guilt complex will be... No, but you know what? No, not Ansel. Fuck him. Kill. <laughs> I really went through a lot right there. What if he dies? Like, <laughs> Chris! You're the one who told me to name him! I was just going to say actor. <laughs> Wait, I'm just gonna check. Is he dead? <laughs> oh no, I'm really scared. Um, no, he's who? He's alive. Twenty nine years old. As of October thirteenth. I might honestly at this. We might have to do a feature where before every episode, we just <laughs> give a general. He's still alive. <laughs> Shout out. Well, I know that the the married kill is not that serious that like i mean it would have been very different if you'd been like yeah fuck it i actually want him dead <laughs> that's true and i and i will say that if any of us ever say that in an episode we'll promptly stop recording and get that person help like <laughs> i, I want to make a vow <laughs> that's what we're gonna do this is lighthearted. this is um <laughs> yeah this is not like kill it's like kill yeah <laughs> yeah i think i did a good job with the voice acting um and marry an icon because here's the thing i really hesitated about this but i have actually yeah, I mean, I think this is a pod exclusive. I think I've always seen myself as an icon of sorts, right? Like, um, <clears throat> um, I mean, I know that you and Rachel, of course, look up to me, and you've when you know you invited me on, and it was like it's um that we. Yeah. What'd you say? We have a picture of you in our homes that we um mm-hmm. pray to five times a day. Like yeah. it's uh, yeah. Yeah. you don't know about this? Um, no. Excuse me. Yeah, I, I mean, nothing. I, I mean, like, just Rachel and I, we have this picture. It's of you. Um, oh, which one? It's like, you know, and, and, and you know. We, <laughs> yeah, and you, oh, 
just <laughs> five times a day, like just out of bed. Nafkote, <laughs> just thank you, thank you, thank you. I have always wondered why at certain moments of the day I feel this kind of jolt of love and energy, and it is literally five times every day. Um, wow. Yeah. Thank you so much. I mean, I should have realized again because I am kind of an icon and a figure you look up to. But wow, thank you. So wait, hold on. Marry an icon. Marry yourself. Like, or you just feel you're worthy of marrying. So I. So I hesitated because I've always thought of myself as being kind of a solo dolo icon. But I was thinking, if I was with another icon, I mean, that is stratospheric, right? Like that is like an icon for an icon. Yep, exactly. Um, Eye for an eye, icon for an icon. Uh, uh, and 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 what do we think that uh, that that Rachel would say? I mean, we're speaking for her. We're speaking for her, and I'm I invite. I'm really excited to hear if we get it right or not. I would have said activist would have been her kill, but I think I could have swayed her to do fuck an activist instead. Yeah. What do you think? Would you have? You, you, you nearly swayed me. I, I have to say, like I was. So uh, <laughs> again, as the icon of the group, just saying, <laughs> very influential. Um, so I don't know. What was what was your original Mary fuck kill for Rachel? Um, I think <laughs> this will sound like a kind of like a failure of empathy, but I thought it was going to be the same as mine. Um, I thought everybody's would be the same as mine. Uh, <laughs> Um, but, uh, <laughs> but, and, and maybe this is a kind of increasing failure of empathy but basically you changed my mind so now I'm capable of like <laughs> being past it yeah. there, are other, there are other possibilities than the one that I first thought Right, right, right. <laughs> so let's say that Rachel would choose that one. She would, so she would fuck the activist. I think she would marry the icon. Mm. Because, like, I think she would marry Grace Kelly. Like, I think if, like, I think Grace Kelly, would uh, be, yeah. like, right, like, that's such an iconic person that she's such an iconic person, of course, but also one that Rachel really loves. I feel like she wouldn't, she would want to marry her, right? Like, she wouldn't want to just fuck her and she would definitely wouldn't want to kill her. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, also sort of similar to you i think there would be this sort of like um at least kind of uh contact iconness that yeah. I think that <laughs> yeah, the contact eye <laughs> you know even if rachel didn't immediately start saying that she felt that she herself was an icon um, her hubris is slightly less aggressive than mine and i'm working <laughs> on that i am working on that i i take your feedback really i hear it <laughs> that i think that kind of like she would yeah would feel that kind of by marrying the icon that she would be Iconified, is that the word? Ooh, now it is. Change, yeah, that's a great word. Iconified. It's not iconographied, obviously. So it's uh, yeah. Um, it's either iconicize or iconify, right? Like there are no other options. Iconicized. Anyway, I don't yeah. think iconicize is a word. <laughs> I really don't think so. Made an icon herself by this, uh, the, as you say, the contact eye from the icon. So I think we've yeah. got that down. Um, then we've got the um, activist actor dichotomy, which I think, I don't know. I mean, I think, I think she'd kill the actor. Yeah, I think so. 
I think I think I think she has about as much patience for actors as perhaps we do. And I say this again as someone who wanted to be an actor for years and years, but now I'm I'm, I'm like a recovered addict. I'm like, I'm so against it, right? Like I'm like every person who's ever quit cigarettes, I'm like, oh, they're the worst thing ever. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, actors can be great. Like, it's not all. Um, I love. I mean, some, some of my just, good friends are actors. Um, it's bitter because I didn't get to be an actor. Let's be honest. That's where my hatred comes in. I just really wanted to be a famous actor. <laughs> but instead, you've gone high got straight beef. Um, That's true. Well, you could really see the act. I give really big actor energy. <laughs> like I'm just looking for my starring vehicle. I'm the worst. I'm, I'm a failed actor. I'm the worst version of an actor. What is a podcast apart from uh, an hour's worth of improv, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, are we all? That? Well, yeah. I mean, like, I don't know. So I'm going to go. Yeah, I, I, I think similarly. I think she probably killed the activist, but then I think it probably depends on. If it's an animal rights activist, then I think that uh, Rachel would be less keen on killing them because uh, she obviously loves animals. So I'm going to say, yeah, exactly. you're right. Uh, kill the actor, fuck the activist. There you have it. Kill the actor, yeah. fuck the activist. Always delivering truth. <laughs> well, I mean, in many ways, my decision to kill the activist because I didn't want any time with them... Um, <laughs> Worked out well. There are still two activists alive and well in the world. That's true. And one actor who's still out there making, what's it, uh, treading the boards? Is that the expression? Yeah, yeah, treading the boards. Yeah. I mean, there are loads of actors. Yeah. So Well, so many boards to be trodden upon. Yeah. No one killed the icon. No. Oh, God, no. <laughs> we, we don't have enough icons. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, maybe that's uh, a good way to kind of like wrap up about like Brigitte Bardot is that, um, you know, for all her controversy and everything like that, like we still love her because we still love an icon, right? That's it. We'll never kill Brigitte Bardot. You heard it here first. <laughs> never will we do that. Never. <laughs> um, <laughs> is that what we're going to be done? We're not going to kill her? Hello. I mean, it makes it sound like we are going to kill her. Yeah. Maybe that's how we should end with just that question. Well, um, should we kill Bridget Bardo? Oh, God, no. That took a turn. That took a turn. <laughs> I mean, like, Bridget Bardo is old. Like, I mean, like, she literally might die quite soon. Not like Ansel. Cut, cut all of this. <laughs> how do we ever end Mary Fuck Kill? That's true. I feel like you and I, are we at the podcast recording? So is Rachel. Rachel always ends them. She always goes, she always goes kind of like a good thing, which she sort of like, and we'll be back next week with more. Right. Oh, so maybe it's like, and we'll be back next week with more iconic statements from, we'll always have Paris. Yeah, no, that's how it has to end. Um, I did it. Um, something about it's something about, and that was we'll always have Paris. It's and not. that was, and that was we'll always have Paris, the most iconic podcast in your ears and in your hearts. We'll we'll, we'll get something out of that. 
right? What? Oh, it was amazing. <laughs> Let me get something out of that.